Chapter Three of The Way of the Wind by Zoe Anderson Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Three. It was not yet June, but the winds blow cold on the prairie later than June at nightfall. The moment the sun goes down, up come the chill winds. Sick at heart, Seth coaxed the shuddering Celia down the steps, into the cellar-like habitation, dimly lighted by a single half-window, dug out mansard fashion at the side. He was silent, hurt in every fiber of his being. His manner was one of profound apology. She was right. It was only a hole in the ground. But he, accustomed to dugouts during the months he had spent on the prairie, preparing for the joy of her coming, had overlooked its deficiencies and learned to think of it as home. There were two chairs. He was glad of that. For a long time there had only been one. He placed her in the new one, bought in honor of her coming, seating her deferentially as if she had been a queen, and went hurriedly about, building a fire of little dry twigs he had torn from shrubs along the river, that the gay crackle of them might cheer her. As she sat looking on, she saw in this humble service not his devotion, but his humiliation, not his great love for her which glorified all service, humble or exalted, but the fact that he had so descended in the scale of life as to put his hands to work that she had been used to see done only by negroes. Her pride, her only inheritance from haughty slave-holding ancestors, was wounded. Not all Seth's devotion, not all his labor in her behalf, could salve that wound. As he knelt before the blazing twigs, apparently doing their best to aid him in his effort to cheer her, something of his feeling penetrated to his inner consciousness. Nevertheless, he piled on twig after twig until the refreshing flames brilliantly illumined the dugout. From dirt floor to dirt roof they filled it with light. The poor little twigs eagerly flashing into flame to help him. Better far if, wet and soggy, they had burned dimly or not at all, for their blaze only served to exhibit every deficiency Seth should have endeavored to hide. The thatch of the roof, the sod, the carpetless floor, the lack of furniture, the plain wooden bedstead in the corner with its mattress of straw, the crazy window fashioned by his own rude carpentry, the shapeless door, which was like a slap in the face with its raw and unpainted color of new wood. After the first wild glance about her, Celia buried her face in her hands, resolutely shutting out the view for fear of bursting into uncontrollable tears. Seth, seeing this, rose from his knees slowly, lamely, as if suddenly very tired, and went about his preparations for their evening meal. Men with less courage than it required to perform this simple duty have stood up to be shot at. Knowing full well that with each act of humble servitude he sank lower and lower in the estimation of the one living creature in whose estimation he wished to stand high, he once more knelt on the hearth, placed potatoes in the ashes, raked a little pile of coals together, and set the coffee-pot on them. 
He drew the small deal table out and put upon it two cups and saucers, plates and forks for two. There was but one knife. That was for Celia. A pocket knife was to serve for himself. It had been his pleasure throughout his lonely days of waiting to picture this first meal which Celia and he should eat together. Never once had he dreamed that the realization could come so near breaking a strong man's heart, that things seemingly of small import could stab with a thrust so knife-like. He felt the color leave his cheek at the thought that he had failed to provide a cloth for the table, not even a napkin. He fumbled at his bandana, then hopelessly replaced it in his pocket. He grew cold at the realization that every luxury to which she had been accustomed, almost every necessity, was absent from that plain board. He had counted on her love to overlook much. It had overlooked nothing. When all was in readiness, he drew up a chair and begged her to be seated. He took the opposite chair, and the meal proceeded in silence, broken only by the wail of the wind and the crackle of the little dry twigs that burned on the hearth. "'I am afraid of it,' sighed Celia. "'Of what, sweet?' he asked, and she answered, "'I am afraid of the wind.' "'There is nothing to be afraid of,' he explained quickly. It is only the ordinary wind of the prairies. It ain't a cyclone. Cyclones never come this way, near to the forks of two rivers where we are. And waxing eloquent on this, his hobby, he began telling her of the great and beautiful and prosperous city which was some time to be built on this spot. Perhaps the very dugout in which they sat would form its center. He talked enthusiastically of the tall steeple temples that would be erected, of the schools and colleges, of the gay people beautifully dressed who would drive about in their carriages under the shade of tall trees that would line the avenues, of the smiling men and women and children whose home the magic city would be, and how he was confident they would build it here because, in the land of terrible winds, when people commenced to erect their metropolis, they must put it where no deadly breath of cyclone or tornado could tear at it or overturn it. With that he went on to describe the destructive power of the cyclones, telling how one in a neighboring county had licked up a stream that lay in its course, showering the water and mud down fifty miles away. "'But no cyclone will ever come here,' he added, and explained why because it was the place of the forks of two rivers, the Big Arkansas and the Little Arkansas. A cyclone will go out of its way, he told her, rather than tackle the forks of two rivers. The Indians knew that. They had pitched their tents here before they had been driven into the territory, and that was what they had said. And they were very wise about some things, those red men, though not about many. But Celia could not help putting silent questions to herself. Why should a cyclone that could snatch up a river and toss it to the clouds fight shy of the forks of two? Looking fearfully around at the shadows, she interrupted him. "'I am afraid,' she whispered. "'I am afraid.' 
Seth left his place at the table and took her in his arms. "'Poor little girl,' he said. "'Afraid and tired, too. Travelin' so far. Of course she's tired.' And with loving hands, tender as a mother's, he helped her undress and laid her on the rough bed of straw, covered with sheets of the coarsest, wishing it might be a bed of down covered with silks, wishing they were back in the days of enchantment, that he might change it into a couch fit for a princess by the wave of a wand. Then he left her a moment, and walking out under the wind-blown stars, he looked up at them reverently and said aloud, for in the dreary deserts of loneliness one often learns to talk aloud very openly and confidentially to God, since people are so scarce and far away. Temper the wind to this poor shiverin' lamb, dear father. And with a fanatic devotion he added, And build the magic city. End of chapter 3 Recording by Roger Moline